Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is David Schizer, who has served as the CEO of the American Joint Distribution Committee, or JDC, since January of 2017. He is a frequent contributor to top media outlets and academic journals, where he provides expert analysis on Jewish issues, Israel, the innovative role of NGOs in civil society, nonprofit governance, and tax law. At age 35, David became the dean of Columbia Law School, where he spent 10 years dramatically expanding the faculty and launching a range of new initiatives. He led a $353 million capital campaign, which doubled the school's traditional fundraising. David serves on the board of directors for Secor Holdings, Filed Properties, 92nd Street Y, Yale Hillel, and the Ramaz School. He also has served as a co-director of Columbia Center for Israeli Legal Studies, president of America's Voice in Israel, and as a senior advisor to the Tikkun Fund. I've asked David on the program today, not only to talk about his non-traditional path into Jewish professional work, but also to hear more about the work of the GDC and how it has changed over time. So I'm very excited to welcome David to the program. Thank you. Great to be here, Michelle. So we'll begin, as we always do, with your personal story, which I touched a little bit upon, but definitely, as I mentioned, a bit more untraditional than some of our other guests. And I'd love to hear how you found yourself in this position. Well, thank you. I used to be a law school dean, as you mentioned, and often I would introduce speakers who would come to the school. And it was interesting to me how when you read someone's bio, It always seems like it was planned, like, oh, they knew that three steps from now they would be doing this, and that's why they did that. And of course, we know that life is never like that. What happens is things come your way. Sometimes you choose to do them. Sometimes you take a different path. And so I certainly realized that my current job at JDC is a bit different from what I've done before, although I do think it follows in important ways. But people often ask me, why does a law school dean and a law professor decide to do this. And for me, the main reason is personal. JDC gives me the opportunity to touch the lives of over 100,000 needy people every year. And I view that as a great privilege. But the question is why? Why am I so focused on that? So I am named for a grandfather, also David Schizer, who died about 12 years before I was born. But his wife, my grandmother, lived to be 102. I spent a lot of time with her. And over the years, one of the main subjects of conversation was she wanted me to understand better her husband and his life. And the truth is, I could never and still in a way can't get my head around how different the situation was for mine. He was born in a tiny village in western Ukraine, not that far from Odessa. Well, over 100 years ago, obviously. His parents died when he was very young. He had two younger siblings. Their grandfather was raising them. And then when he was 17 years old, his grandfather was lynched in a pogrom. And so he became the primary caregiver for these two younger siblings. Now, I have three children, and my oldest is having her 17th birthday in just a couple of months. So this is a fairly terrifying prospect to me, and it's a situation that no one should ever be in. But his life actually got more difficult. The Russian Revolution happens. It is very much a civil war in his part of Western Ukraine. And one day, the Tsar's people came to the village looking for communists. When they didn't find any, they figured, well, let's not waste the day. Let's shoot some Jews. So my grandfather and some others were literally lined up against a wall 
and they were about to be shot when some communists actually appeared. They're all shooting at each other. My grandfather and the others managed to slip away. And this, for him, was the defining moment when he realized that he had to get himself and his siblings out of there. So they came to America. And now let's fast forward to my life, which obviously has also been full of pain, but mostly about the New York Mets. <laughs> and so there's almost nothing that my life has in common with his life. And although when I was younger, I used to think that I could take some credit for the way my life had unfolded, and perhaps I can to a degree, I would say 95% of it is just I won the birth lottery. I happened to be born in the time and the place is probably the greatest time for a Jew to be alive. And I owe it very much to him and to the grandparents and great-grandparents who brought me here, or rather came here so that I could be born here. And so there's a way in which I would love to do something for them. But of course, they're long gone, and I can't. But the reality is there are Jewish people around the world living very difficult lives, facing extremely difficult challenges. And to me, it's very meaningful to be able to help them, to be able to pay it forward. That's wonderful. I hear not very often, but sometimes from guests that there's, you know, whether it is a family story or just, you know, your connection to Judaism and history and just what we've gone through this much deeper sense of responsibility for their service and the reason why they're, you know, doing this work with some passion behind them and some personal connection. So not wonderful to hear because clearly your grandfather had, a, you know, some difficult experiences, but that you're internalizing that in your work is wonderful. So talk to me a little bit about the decision to come into this position, I guess, almost a year and a half ago or a little over a year and a half ago. Look, JDC's mission inspires me. It's about saving Jewish lives. It's about building Jewish life. Basically, we will go where others can't or won't go to try to do really difficult jobs in order to help people at risk and in danger and to strengthen communities. So the mission appeals to me. It inspires me. I will add, though, that there's a second aspect of this job, which is incredibly appealing to me and which was a deciding factor in my wanting to do it. And it has to do with running the place more like a business. We've been around for 104 years. I think we've been immensely successful in all sorts of ways, but the world is challenging and things are always changing and we need to be a step ahead. And that means we have to be very nimble and we have to be rigorous in rethinking our mission. Put another way, I'm on the board of a public company. One of the great things for me about that experience has been working with a really talented CEO. We're lucky to have him and seeing the way he approaches his job. In that company, we have a number of different businesses. And in all of his waking hours, he's thinking carefully and rigorously about how to allocate the company's capital. Something should grow. Something should shrink. Some things should be eliminated altogether. Some new things should be launched. And I really think that at JDC, I have exactly that job. Um, the only difference is we don't use the metric of profitability. We're thinking about social return. We're thinking about how to affect people's lives in the most impactful way. But we do work in 67 countries and we do different kinds of work. And I think one of the key responsibilities that I have is trying to figure out how to allocate our scarce energy and resources. And so I love that aspect of the job and we've made some real changes and some real progress. Well, let's launch into it then. Give us a little bit of background about GDC and the work and maybe some history about how it might have changed up until now. And then we'll talk a little bit more about how, what your leadership has meant for the organization. So we were born 104 years ago at the very beginning of World War I. The American ambassador 
to the Ottoman Empire, Henry Morgenthau Sr., was very concerned just after the war broke out. He was concerned about that small Jewish community in Palestine. And he realized that the war was going to cut them off from much of Europe, and it would leave them in a very dire situation. So he sent a telegram to two of his friends in New York, Felix Warburg and Jacob Schiff. And in a phrase that's famous within the JDC family, he said, will you undertake matter? Will you do something? And they responded by saying, absolutely, we will consult with other people here, but go ahead do the work, even if no one else will do it, we will undertake the matter. You know, we'll pay for it ourselves. And so we began with an effort to help impoverished Jews in Israel. Very quickly, because of World War I, and because of the fact that the war's eastern front was in the old Pale of Settlement, where a lot of Jews lived, there were a lot of Jews on that eastern front in what would become eventually the Soviet Union in 1917 who were facing desperate situations. So we broadened our work to that as well. What's interesting is if you fast forward to today and you look at our budget, which is $330 million each year, about two thirds of it is spent in those two places. It's spent in Israel, helping poor people. And it is spent in what is now the former Soviet Union, helping the poorest Jews in the world and strengthening communities. So there's a way in which there's a beautiful symmetry about that, because we've taken twists and turns along the way. But the constant is that for 104 years, our mission has never changed. And we think of it as saving Jewish lives and as building Jewish life, helping vulnerable Jews and strengthening Jewish communities around the world. So what are some ways that you're saving Jewish lives? What's the actual kind of tactlessness of the work that the organization does? So I should tell you about a trip I took to Belarus about a year ago, a little bit more. There are two recollections I have, which I think make the point about the scope and breadth of what we do there and throughout the world. So one of the things we do is we care for elderly Jews in the former Soviet Union. These are the poorest Jews in the world. They were very successful professionally during the Soviet era, but of course things changed and they never got to accumulate assets. And now they're in a position where they're living on only government pensions, which for example, in Ukraine are only $2 a day. It's a form of desperate poverty that is really hard to get your head around unless you've seen it. And so we're providing life-saving support for 100,000 Jewish people. Half of them are Holocaust survivors, the Claims Conference is a crucial partner where they're sole care provider in the region. So we care for almost 50,000 of those. We care for another 50,000 elderly people who are not Nazi victims. And there are key funding partners and supporters are the Jewish Federations North America, IFCJ, and some other very important institutions and individuals. But let me try to make this a little more concrete. So I went to a place in Belarus called Bobrusk which is a little town which used to have 80,000 Jews before the Holocaust. Now they have only about 3,000. Much of the Jewish population in Belarus was murdered during the Shoah, but there's still a very significant Jewish population. So I walked into this home visiting a woman named Emma, and frankly, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. The home used to be a stable. A horse lived there until she'd moved in. There was no central heat. It's pretty cold in Belarus during the winter. Instead, someone had knocked a hole in the wall with a sledgehammer and put a grate over it. And I said to her, what's the heat like here? And she said, well, she burns wood for an hour in the morning and an hour at night. That's all she can do. That wood comes from JDC and American Jewish community, the global Jewish community. And I said, is it enough? 
she said to me, well, it's more than some people have, which I have to say speaks to the courage, this undying spirit that you meet in these people who lived such difficult lives. I should add, um, she's disabled. She can barely walk. She has no indoor plumbing. If you think about what that means, and particularly in the winter in Belarus, the idea that she has to move across her very small home and get outside that way, it's not easy. Fortunately, JDC also provides her with a home care worker. And I have to tell you, I thought that home care worker was spectacular. I got to speak to her. And when you looked at the dynamic between them, it was much more like two sisters or maybe a mother and a daughter rather than something professional. She's great. And I left and I said to a colleague, I said, how much do we pay this home care worker? And he said, you're not going to believe it. I said, well, tell me. So $1.50 an hour. So the point is, with relatively modest amounts of money, we are saving lives. We're changing people's situations. And the life expectancy of our clients in the former Soviet Union, it's about 12 years longer than the average life expectancy in the country. So it tells you the impact that everyone has through JDC in supporting this work. I'll maybe share one other anecdote, because again, it's not only saving Jewish lives, it's also building Jewish life. So we also are eager to engage young Jewish people in particular within the Jewish tradition. And one thing you probably know, Michelle, but many don't know, is that because of seven decades of communism, because they were so determined to stamp out organized religion, and because there was discrimination against Jews, the Jewish community, which is about a million people, it's a lot of people, many have been deeply uninvolved. The Jewish communal institutions were non-existent two and a half decades ago when we got there. And truth is, a lot of Jews were living secretly as Jews, not telling people they sometimes didn't even tell their kids. But things have changed a lot. And one of the wonderful things about the former Soviet Union in 2018 is that adolescent rebellion works in our favor. Because young people think of Jewish identity, Jewish activities, as actually differentiating them from their parents and grandparents. And they think of it as cosmopolitan and global and pan-European, and you could even use the word cool. We started a BBYO group, which we call Active Jewish Teens. We started it four years ago with 30 kids in Kharkov. And today we have 3,100 kids. Four years later, we've gone from 30 to 3,100 kids in 57 locations. One of those locations is Bobrovsk. So there I was. I left Emma's home and I went to meet the kids in the Active Jewish Teens chapter. Now, this was right after Passover of last year. And so I and the people I was with, we asked, what are you guys doing? And so a voice says in broken English, tell them the matzah. <laughs> so thinking, what is this? And the leader of the group, whose English was actually terrific, then told us the following story. She said, remember that the Seder started on Monday night. Yes. Well, the matzah for the homebound elderly was supposed to arrive on Sunday, not on Monday, but it didn't. It came on Monday at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And you might ask why, and the answer is because it's Belarus. <laughs> Things don't always work quite the way they're supposed to. So my colleagues in our welfare center, our chesed center in Bobrovsk, were panicking. How do we deliver 300 boxes of matzah in just a couple of hours? It didn't seem possible. But of course, the elderly people needed to have it. I mean, that's what we do. So they had the very good idea of calling the head of this youth group, Active Jewish Teens. And the group, it was not planned. They didn't know they were going to be asked to do this. But on no notice, they dropped everything. And 30 kids each delivered 10 boxes of matzah, mostly on bicycles. And I think the fact that they were willing to do that is pretty remarkable. I hope that young people in our country would do it. I'm not altogether sure they all would, 
I thought it was especially beautiful that they wanted to tell us about it and that they were so proud of it. So the point is, part of what we want to do is care for needy people today. Much of what we want to do is to build the kind of vibrant, committed Jewish community so that people will be doing this for themselves and for their neighbors as the years go by. Those are wonderful stories. I appreciate you sharing. This definitely gives us a good picture in our mind as to the kind of work that you're doing. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to our conversation with David, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Actually, you already know her. It's me. As we wrap up the 2018 series, I will be joined by my husband, Barack Malkin, as I discuss what it's been like to create this podcast and what the future holds for this project. Here is a clip from what I hope will be an enjoyable conversation. Being a part of the URJ has really allowed me to be me. And I think that's what I'd always been looking for in a position is somewhere where I can be myself, which believe it or not, it's been really hard. And I've been given, you know, good and bad feedback that I'm always trying to improve on. But if you feel like in your position, whatever it is, whether you are the lucky ones that never has to look for a job or someone who's had a little bit of a rockier path, You'll know when you found it, when you feel like you can be you and that your talents and your ideas and the way that you work, all of those various elements of who you are is appreciated. And that also comes with, you know, being humble and making changes when they're not, you know, what fits with the culture. But it's really made a big difference for me in finding a place where I can really feel like I can do my work, do well, be who I am. So always good advice for people is make sure you find somewhere where you can be who you are. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with my husband in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to David. Great. So I want to focus a little more to the business logistical side. You talked a lot about in the last you know year and a half that you've been there, really trying to look at the work in a more business type fashion, think about what kind of change could kind of propel the organization forward. $330 million is a lot of dollars every year to support the programs that you're doing. So what does the future look like? What does change for JDC look like? And what's been your experience in making change within a you know longstanding Jewish organization where I'm sure a lot of lay leaders have been there for many, many years? Is it something they're embracing and that's why they wanted to bring you on? Is it you know something that you are just charging forward with and said, I know that this is the best way to go and we're going to do this? I'd love to hear about that experience. So I think, as I said, resource allocation is the most fundamental of my responsibilities, making sure that every penny that we get is used in the most effective way that is possible. And so what we did is I and the senior team of professionals spent a lot of time just even before I started as CEO talking about our planning process. And what I did is I started with separate conversations with each of the regional directors. And I asked them the following. I said, imagine you have two possible projects, A and B, and you'd really like to do them both, but you only have the resources to do one. How would you make that decision? And what impressed me is that they all gave very similar answers. So what I did is after I had those conversations, I summarized what I thought the decision-making criteria were. I then shared them with the group. I brought them all together. We rewrote it not once, but twice. And we came up with what is now a very useful guiding principle for everything that we do. And we use a form of zero-based budgeting where we carefully examine every year, not just the things that we're likely to add, 
but also the things that we're continuing. Because after all, the opportunity cost of a dollar is still a dollar, whether it's devoted to something new or something that you did last year. So about everything we do, we ask three questions. And I don't know that they'll surprise you, although the third is a bit different from what people sometimes do. The first is how important is the problem? We should only be working on issues that are really serious, you know, critical to vulnerable Jewish people, critical to the future of Jewish community. I should say how important is the problem and how connected is it to our mission? Global warming, solar energy, those are important, but we're not the ones to do it. So the first thing is find the right problem. Second, once you think you've identified the issues we need to address, we need to know how effective we can be. How effective would the solution be? Because even if a problem is really important, if we think we can't move the needle on it, it's not a great use of our resources. On the other hand, if we can find a better way to move the needle on it, that's even better. So the right problem, the right solution. And then the third question is really about us. Are we the right organization to take this on? And what I'm getting at is two things. The first is what are others doing? Because if other people are already addressing the issue, then even if we could do it a little bit better, it doesn't add a lot, right? We should mostly be going where other organizations can't or won't be. And then the second part of it is, do we have a unique institutional comparative advantage? Is there something about us which makes us think that this work really, in a sense, has to be done? By us, because even though $330 million is a lot, I know it's a lot. It's a very big world. And we can really only do a small fraction of the things that ideally we'd like to do. And so um, we just ran our second planning process like this. We're in the midst of running it for 2019 now. And each of the people who runs our programs prepare a document asking and answering those three questions about everything they do. And then I produce a document that's meant to distill it all. It's a global strategy document. Uh, We're now at the stage where we're beginning to share those documents with our lay leaders, with the board committees that supervise the work in the regions. And I'm bringing the global strategy document to our global programs committee and then to the whole board. But that's a very different process than what we used to use before. And I think it's made a real difference. I'm happy to give you examples of things that are changing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Even just the mandate of planning and creating structures, I think is something people tend to forget how important that is. But you're absolutely right that that third point is very unique to what I've, not to say what I've heard, but I think what is intuitive in the Jewish community, right? To show my nerdy side, to go where no one you know, has gone before, to only do things in which you are the unique provider. I think in the Jewish community, we often think, well, let's work on X issue because all these other organizations are working on X issue. And therefore we have partners, we have leverage, we have tools that are already created. And I've always been of your thinking <laughs> of why, like, why would you do that as opposed to if your mission is specific to something, you know, don't, Go for the easy thing that everybody else is doing. Figure out where there's a gap that you uniquely can fill and fill that gap. Is that something that you brought in this process or was that part of the culture that you kind of found when you got there that we need to be providing unique things that other people aren't filling? I do think there's a spirit in the organization. Some might even call it like the special forces of the Jewish people. We sort of look for things that are really hard for other people, but that we could do because we're global in our profile. But having said that, I think I've tried to tap into that spirit and really push it. Because again, to put it bluntly, none of us are or should be here doing what we do for JDC. It's for the clients. It's for the communities we're trying to energize. It's for the poor people who have nowhere else to turn. 
And so if others are already taking care of them, great, then let's find the people who need us. So there are obviously poor Jewish people in France, for example. We don't work there. I mean, we do other things in France, but we don't provide welfare type support because the safety net that the French government provides is quite robust. The Jewish community there is impressively well-organized and we're not needed. On the other hand, if you're talking about the former Soviet Union, the governments don't provide anything like a meaningful safety net and other Jewish organizations have not been able to do what we can do, particularly for elderly. And so that's the spirit of it. But it isn't only in the former Soviet Union. In Europe, our main goal is really strengthening communities. And then what we're careful to do is always to work with communities. We have community partners and we want them to do as much as they can. And our job is to give them access to expertise and targeted funding for key initiatives that align with our priorities and theirs. But again, we don't want to duplicate what they're doing and what others are doing. That's wasteful and it's unnecessary. We look for that special area where we can make a real difference. Well, and it seems like your partnerships are coming in, as you mentioned, you know, partnering with BBYO to make chapters in various countries and obviously working with federations and, you know, support and things like that. It seems like that's where in bolstering your ability to do your work is in where your partnerships lie as opposed to the actual implementation of your work or where you choose to do your work, which is great. And I'm just going to come back to this $330 million (laughs) for a moment. As a current fundraising professional and in just thinking, you know, you are obviously one of the largest Jewish organizations in North America and the globe as we've explored here. Where does that come from? I mean, clearly you have, you know, a staff that works on this, but are these, you know, government grants or these individual major donors or these through, you know, just the 150,000 donors that you have, you know, that give you $18? To raise $330 million annually, that's quite a feat. I should clarify the breakdown of what is philanthropic dollars and what is not. So the Claims Conference is the organization which receives restitution money from the German taxpayer and from other restitution sources and then provides that money to care providers across the world to care for survivors. We are the sole care provider for the Claims Conference for Nazi victims in the former Soviet Union, and we received $90 million of restitution funding there. In Eastern Europe, we received something like $30 million of restitution funds And we provide care directly in Hungary. In other places, we make grants to the local community, which provides the care, and we supervise it. So the point is 120 million of the 330 comes from the claims conference, comes from the German government and other restitution sources. That's not philanthropic. Then there's another $60 million, which comes from the Israeli government for our work in Israel. And I should explain the work in Israel. And that'll take us to the $150 million of philanthropic money that we raise every year. And I'm happy to talk about that and where it comes from. But our work in Israel is in ways exactly the same and in ways fundamentally different from the work that I've described before. What's similar about it is that our relentless, unremitting focus is on vulnerable populations. We're looking to help the poorest of Israel's citizens. And we also look to energize NGOs, communal organizations to help the government run more effectively. So there's also a community development analogy to what we do uh, in Israel. But it is in a way very different. And why? Remember I said we don't provide care in France. Well, Israel is similar in the sense that it's quite a wealthy country. 
for example, the GDP, the gross domestic product per person last year, I think I'll give you 2017 statistics because I remember them. In the US, it's $62,000 a person. In Israel, it's 42000 per person. In Ukraine, it's $2,600 per person. I mean, it's just fundamentally different. So you might say, wait a minute, Israel is a wealthy country and their government is quite committed to providing care, to having a safety net. What is the role of JDC? And the answer there is we're not about money. And in fact, the Israeli government with that $60 million funds two thirds of what we do in Israel. And we're also not about providing the services directly because we always have nonprofit partners we do that with. Our role, stated simply, is innovation. We have the responsibility of partnering with about 20 different Israeli government ministries on about 150 programs at a time to come up with pilot programs, new ideas. Let's think of a creative new way that's never been tried to help poor people, to help people get jobs, to help elderly people remain independent, to help kids at risk turn their lives around, to help disabled Israelis live more fulfilling and independent lives. So we're a little bit like an architect and a general contractor. We'll come up with an idea with NGO partners. We'll try it out for seven to 10 years. If it works, the Israeli government will take it over, scale it up, run it throughout the country, and we're done. So we're helping poor people but in a very different way, because our job, and it goes back, Michelle, to what we were saying, we should do what no one else can do. I was speaking to a mayor of a city with a lot of low-income people in Israel, and he said to me, we really need the joint to do this. And I forgot that I was in Israel, and I thought he was just being polite. And then I he saw that I didn't absorb what he meant. And so he said, no, David, what I'm saying is the people who work for my city, they're very good, but they're good at running an existing program. They don't know how to launch something new. We need the joint for that. And that's our niche in Israel. So there's $60 million that goes with that. It leaves $150 million for us to raise every year. We're fortunate to have the Jewish Federations of North America as a steadfast, crucial partner in our work. About a third of that, about $50 million, comes from them. And then the other $100 million, it comes from key institutional partners, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, the Weinberg Foundation, the Wall Trust, a number of other institutional funders, as well as our generous board members and thousands of people throughout the world. Well, it definitely breaks down and makes sense as to the reason, you know, for the work that you're doing, which is fantastic. So what's in the future? You've come in, you've learned about the organization, you've done some planning, created some structure, clearly ingrained yourself in the mission and the purpose of the organization. What does the next five, 10 years look like for the work? One is the key areas where we need to change. And this has been my obsession for 18 months, and I'm very proud of the results that our team has been able to produce. One of the key challenges is that I told you, we help 100,000 elderly Jews in the former Soviet Union are the poorest Jews in the world. 50,000 of them, eh, 46,000 to be precise, are Holocaust survivors. The other 54,000 are not. I mention this because we spend $115 million on the program. But of the $115 million, $90 million comes from the German government. And that's only for survivors. And as we realize, the youngest survivor today is 73 years old. So although we have 46,000 survivors as clients now, when you look ahead 10 years, we will have a tiny fraction of that. And therefore, 10 years from now, we will get nothing like $90 million. It will be a much, much smaller number. So I first heard that. And I said, okay, but that's not a problem 
because the people we're caring for will be gone, the survivors. The money will be gone, but it's a wash, isn't it? And we were spending $25 million on the other clients and we can continue doing that. Well, it isn't that simple. And the reason it isn't that simple is that there is an infrastructure. There are supervisors, back office functions, buildings, training facilities, which are shared by both programs. And the German government contributes very significantly to the cost of that infrastructure. It's about a $14 million contribution to the infrastructure. So if tomorrow all of our Nazi victim clients won the lottery, didn't need us anymore, the German government discontinued the program. And so we were just looking to care for the 54 some odd thousand non-Nazi victim clients, people who are a bit younger, people who were far enough east in the country that they don't qualify as Nazi victims. If all we wanted to do is care for them, we could not do it for $25 million. We probably need about $14 million, which is sort of the claims conferences share of the shared infrastructure. That would mean a $39 million program. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty big difference. It means we'd have to increase the budget by $14 million every year. What I've been doing with my colleagues is to develop a new way of delivering care which requires a much lighter infrastructure. And so the good news is we've figured out a plan, we've begun to implement it, and we should be able to turn that 14 million into 5 million in the next five to six years. This goes back to the point we discussed before, run it like a business. Believe me, when I say the goal is not a business goal, the goal is to help generation of brave people who've suffered unimaginable hardships in the course of their life to help them end their days with a bit of dignity. But in terms of how we do it, we absolutely need to continue the care. That can't change. But we need to find more efficient, more cost-effective ways to do it as the realities on the ground shift. One example, but an important one. Yeah. Is there anything, you know, kind of internal to the organization, anything having to do with the way that you operate or your structure or things that you're looking to sunset or, you know, engaging more Jews in America in your work, any of those kind of more internal changes that you've been contemplating? I was speaking to Senator Lieberman, Joe Lieberman, not long ago, and we were talking about JDC's work. He knows it really well. He gives us very important advice on various issues. And he smiled at one point and he said, JDC is the most important Jewish organization that no one's ever heard of. It's fascinating to me. If you've been very involved, for example, in the Federation world, you know JDC because JDC is a longstanding partner of Federation. So there are people who know us and love us, but there are a lot of people who haven't heard of us. One of the things we're looking to do is to help educate the world a bit more about us and about our work and their range of ways to do that. I think social media is an important one. We've also are planning now to do more outreach, for example, bar and bat mitzvah programs, schools. And part of the reason is we think that our work is a great lesson for young Jewish people. And I'll give you another example of that. Just as we're not all that well known among kids who are 11 or 12 and looking ahead to their bar and bat mitzvahs, we're also not all that well known among people in their 20s and in their early 30s. And at the same time, some of those people are not some of those young Jewish people, idealistic, talented young Jewish people. They don't have much of a connection to their Jewish tradition. They're not all that interested in Jewish communal life. But at the same time, so many of them really are passionate about international humanitarian work. So one of the initiatives we launched over 10 years ago now, and it's gotten much larger, and I think it's been a great success, is called Entwine. You can think of it as a Jewish Peace Corps. We have people come on service trips 
they can be as short as 10 days. Young people are often very busy, but you can do it for a matter of months as well. And they come and they work on our programs. They help us care for elderly people. They help us with youth groups. They help us in northern Israel and the Israeli Arab community. And these are inspiring opportunities for them. We mix the service with a lot of conversation and learning about Jewish values. And the goal is to help people see that when they, you know, they're Jewish and they love international humanitarian work, they may not have seen the connection before, but actually the connection is a very close one. And so it gives them a way to embrace their Jewish identity and frankly, to want to be involved in Jewish communal life, which we love to see and it's happening. And it's difficult sometimes when you do so much and do it well, you know, sometimes it's those personal stories that you have to be able to tell that there's no brochure that's going to encompass, you know, all the work of your organization or one short, you know, PowerPoint or presentation. So I think that it, which, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations are hearing just it's in the stories, right? It's in talking about Emma and, you know, what you do for her that makes such a difference as opposed to, you know, the thousands of this or the hundreds of that or the millions of this that, you know, can kind of get somebody attached to your work or even understand what it is. So I'm happy to be providing this platform for you to get people to better understand and know what your organization is and does. I love keeping to go back to this more like a business and the changes that you're making. When you think about, you know, our listeners and people who are either professional or lay leaders in the Jewish community, what's some advice you might have for them in how you kind of came into this position and the way that you approach your work in the Jewish community as opposed to in the secular world or any other kind of advice you might have for people in the field, whether they're trying to make change or just doing their job, any wisdom you might impart on us? I'll offer a couple of thoughts. One is, and I can't say this in strong enough terms, we are all on the same side. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely fine for people to disagree collegially, for people to take a different view in good faith about things. What I think is regrettable is we shouldn't think that our affiliation is to our organization. It's to the work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think people are often a bit turf protective in ways that isn't helpful and jockeying one against the other. And this is human nature. This is natural. And in some sense, it flows from a very commendable, even beautiful passion for the results they're trying to achieve. I just believe that we're going to get those results much more effectively. We're going to get where we want to go if we're all talking to each other, working together when it makes sense. And when we all remember that we're emphatically on the same side. So I am sad because I think we all understand this is a time when the Jewish community is maybe not as united as we'd like to be. JDC is maybe particularly well positioned to think about it because our name is the Joint Distribution Committee. Right. It's actually not a reference to cannabis. Just, <laughs> just clarifying that, Michelle. Just let's take that off the table. But when we were established in 1914, there was a very difficult environment within the Jewish community because you had the older, more established Jewish community, German Jews, they came in the 1840s, the 1860s. Then you had a lot of immigrants who started coming from the 1880s and on from the old Russian Empire and other places. And the two groups did not especially have a warm relationship. And the reason we're called the Joint Distribution Committee is it was an explicit effort to bring those two groups together on behalf of the neediest, most vulnerable Jews in the world. And I think today, again, it could easily be, in fact, we know it's true, that Jews have a very broad range of views about domestic 
politics, about Israel, about Jewish identity, about a whole range of things. But the work that JDC does is work that everyone should embrace, because why should a Jewish person, why should anyone starve in this Mm -hmm. world? Why shouldn't young people who want to have access to Jewish tradition have it anywhere in the world? This is not a political mission. This is a shared mission. And one of the things that's so impressive about our board is you have people who are incredibly passionate about contemporary issues of public policy and see them very differently. And yet, when they're together in a room, figuring out how to help Israeli Arab mothers get into the workforce, we're all on exactly the same page trying to figure out how to do it Mm -hmm. really effectively. Yeah, it just goes back to the figuring out what makes sense for those partnerships, right? How do you position yourself in doing the most good that your organization is uniquely able to offer? Wonderful. So bringing it to you personally, you mentioned you have a family, obviously a very demanding job now that you know takes you all over the world, I'm presuming. What are some things that you implement to keep your life balanced, to be sure you're spending enough time with your friends and family and the things that you know keep you a whole person while taking on this you know, very important position that I can only assume is very different than what you've done before? So I have three wonderful kids. They're 16, 14, and 10. And I'm at my happiest when I'm with my wife and my kids. There's no question. Family is crucially important to me. And I would say one of the aspects of this job, which is less than ideal, is I do travel a lot for obvious reasons. In 2017, I was away for 95 nights. I had a bureaucratic reason to notice that. It's, it's yeah. a lot. It's more, I think, than it'll be this year. The first year is different. But having said that, one of the things I do, regardless of the time zone that I'm in, is I make sure to find a way to speak to my children every day. And it's actually not as easy as you'd think. They go to Ramaz, school starts pretty early for them, it goes pretty late. So if I'm in Israel, by the time they get home from the upper school, it's approaching six o'clock, that's one in the morning. So I will stay up if I haven't spoken to them. But I have found that the magical window is at about 6.45 in the morning before they left for school, 6.45 Eastern Mm. in New York. Um, And about 1.45 in Israel, I just block out 1.45 to 2.05, say. That 20 minutes, I don't care what I'm doing in Israel. I am almost always going to be available to call and just see how they're doing. So one example, and of course, when I'm home, there are things that we love to do together. My son loves to play chess. I love to play chess. We do that together. My oldest daughter loves to play tennis. I love to play tennis. We we like to do that sometimes. I run. My kids sometimes come with me. We like to bike together. And the other thing I'd say is that I'm Shomer Shabbos. And so Saturdays, I will do anything I can to get home by Friday night. It's rare that I will agree to be away over a weekend. I do it, but very rarely. And on Shabbos, I'm always with them. And that makes all the difference. That's wonderful. To have that kind of worked into Jewish life as mandated that I'm, I'm sorry, it's Shabbos. There's uh, nothing I can do. Can't do any work. It's a nice structure that we've had, obviously, for a very long time. Wonderful. So we've kind of touched upon a lot of different things, your personal journey in life, the way you kind of come into this position and the work of the organization. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon or that you'd like to revisit briefly or you'd like people to know about the organization? You asked me about my approaches to my work and my approaches to life. And one of the areas where it's the same approach across the board, my friends tease me that I'm pathologically honest. 
um, (laughs) The reason reason for this is I've mostly always been this way, but I've learned over the years how valuable it can be. And it can be very unpleasant in particular situations where you have to tell people things that you know won't make them happy and that you know will create issues. But on the other hand, I think it is so much worse when they figure it out later and they didn't think that you were being straight with them. And I would add also that in a job like mine, it is inevitable that some people will be unhappy with some aspect of what I'm trying to do, because that's just a fundamental part of making choices. And choices means you do X and not Y. And the thing is, I so prefer, I never want people to be unhappy with JDC or with me, but I so prefer for them to be unhappy with something that I actually believe, because then I'm comfortable defending it. Whereas if instead, I tried to be a bit political and I went along with something that I didn't think made sense. Then all of a sudden I'm in a position of having people criticize it and I agree with the criticism. And that to me is an unacceptable way to go. And of course, the other advantage of honesty is it gives people the opportunity to change my mind and to really change my mind because they know what I actually think and so they can address it. So to me, it is an indispensable part of being a high achieving organization that we be candid with each other. Now, I confess, it does sometimes create its own challenges. I know it, but I would rather have those challenges than the challenges that go along with the other way. Yeah, sometimes our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness, depending on the person we're talking to in the situation we're in. Wonderful, David. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today and your experience. And I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors in the coming year and you know, doing everything that you can for this organization to thrive, which is fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Michelle. Social services are not always the first thing we think about when we think about the Jewish community especially social services in other countries. But what David demonstrates for us is what the impact looks like when we step outside our local, state, or national mindset to see the possibilities in the world Jewish community. The way we interact and support Holocaust survivors, Jewish youth groups, Jewish community centers, those Jews most in need and disaster victims only serves to improve the vibrancy and vitality of our own local, state, and national communities. As I mentioned in our conversation, $33 million is a lot of dollars. And the immense responsibility JDC has in distributing and managing those dollars annually is beyond my comprehension. It is clear, however, what the impact is of each one of those dollars for the people they serve and the values they promote. I'm humbled by David's stories in demonstrating this impact and challenge you to have some of those stories by your own work seared in your mind to serve as a guiding light in the work that you do. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more. On our website, it's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.